Howdy, partner, and welcome to the wonderful world of Tom Hanks giving. I'm your host, Elvis, and today we are talking about 2012's Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, my guest today, Elliot Campos, came on and introduced this idea of character assassination by ways of this movie being produced by Disney, about Disney. And uh, looking at the protagonist, uh, Emma Thompson's um, Mrs. P.L. Travers, the original writer of the Mary Poppins books, as a negative portrayal and not in a kind way, especially since this is a woman who famously, historically, accurately still disowned the movie um, and never came to terms with the release of it, which is kind of not how the movie goes. Uh, so it's it's one of these times where I kind of wish I'd had more time to think about the movie um, and before we had the conversation, because I think there's something there. But uh, let's uh, let's see what you guys think. Let's begin our conversation with Elliot, and then I'll come back at the end and have see if I have any more thoughts about where where this landed with me. All right, see you guys at the end. Let's begin. How do you tell if it's recording? When the red light's on, it means it's going. Oh, so we started? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, who, this is uh, Elliot Campos. And this is uh, this Elvis Kunish. I think they know that part already. <laughs> uh, I tried to pronounce it correctly. You, you kind of did. Uh, you returning from um, the Lady Killers podcast, and he was the one who really wanted to talk about this movie. And today we're talking Disney's Saving Mr. Banks. Tom Hanks, Emma Thompson, the story behind the story of Mary Poppins. Let's can we start off uh, talking about Mary Poppins? We like, can. What's your familiarity? My history. Okay. With the work. I have two things to say immediately about Mary Poppins. Maybe three. Um, uh, first thing is, this movie just made me want to watch Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, I believe when I was a child, and this is before I had, you, I have data memory in my brains, so this is a memory I have that was told to me by my family. It was not something I actually remember experiencing. But every time, I, w I would like watch Mary Poppins every day, and every time it would start, the music at the beginning would be so sad I would start crying. Really? Yeah. Uh, and the third thing is um, I always think of uh, one of my absolute favorite Simpsons episode is with Sherry Bobbins and uh, the Mary Poppins parody because it's wonderful. The only... I've been watching through The Simpsons for the last year and I'm... I just started season six, mm -hmm. and uh, the Mary, was it, Sherry Bobbins? Sherry Bobbins. That hasn't come up yet, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, the only thing yes. I remember is the ending where she flies off and yes. an event happens. That's the only thing I remember. So Spoiler I'm alert. Forward. I, well, I didn't say what happened. No, I know, I know. Um, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that episode now. Then I won't you break know, out my, my Barney uh, impression because I can do a pretty spot I think I remember, Barney. okay, like I'm, it's coming back to me a little bit, but man, you know, there are a lot of good Simpsons episodes. There are a lot of good Simpsons episodes, and talking for five minutes about uh, the Simpsons in the front of a Tom Hanks podcast, what is this, blasphemy? No, no, 
Because as we know from the Simpsons movie, which Tom Hanks appears in, The Simpsons is part of the Tom Hanks canon. It all rolls together. It all rolls together. So that is my immediate uh, thoughts and history with Mary Poppins. Okay. What about you yourself? What Was this part of the reason why you wanted to talk about this movie? Mm, not really. I oh, mean... Uh, <laughs> what, what, sorry. We should say. Came out in 2012. Directed by John Lee Hancock. Written by Kelly Marcel and Sue Smith. And I believe this was kind of like a blacklist script. Like they had written it with the intention that Disney will never let us produce it. So mm -hmm. sort of like the film itself, it came from a creative passion and a struggle with a corporation. And you were saying something to that effect is maybe why you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this movie is that this movie is, it's a story in which a corporation goes up against the little guy and the corporation wins. And the corporation is actually the underdog in this story. Yeah. I would and say. I think that it's really, really interesting how when you like go over the Wikipedia page and follow this, you know, development in how this movie was made, you can see how originally they wanted to, you know, tell this story about uh, P.L. Travers, the writer of... Mrs. P.L. Travers. Mrs. P.L. Travers, the writer of Mary Poppins. And, you know, when they decided to focus on this specific period, her... Uh, collaborating with Walt Disney to create the Mary Poppins movie. And then, you know, when they started, like, focusing on that, they realized that they had so much, like, music that was copyrighted that there was no way, you know, they would be able to tell that story the way they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Now, um, a movie like Selma for example, that doesn't have any of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches in it. Yeah, because all, all those are copyrighted by DreamWorks for a possible biopic. Which is a weird thing to think about. Yes. That a speech... Corporations, again. ...can be owned by, yeah. Uh, but yes, um, but that was part of the reason why if this movie was really going to be made, it had to be made with Disney. It's really, really weird because Disney... You know, the creative, the screenwriters took their idea to Disney and, you know, Disney looked at it and, I mean, there are specific executives. Not, not the man executives. himself, of course. Yeah, the, Walt there Disney is no longer there. Uh, you know, depending on who you ask. Uh, specific executives looked at it and decided that, you know, this was a worthy, um, you know, project to get behind. And, you know, with this movie, it turned out to be a critical and commercial success. Like, it has, like, 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. And, like, it was a fairly inexpensive movie, but it made almost $100 million in the U.S. So, you know, they turned out, you know, a product that made money and was well-received. But in terms of Academy Awards, I, like, I, around the time this movie came out, I was working in Century City. Like, I was driving there every day. And for, like, a month or two, I drove by this giant billboard every day that said, for your consideration, saving Mr. Banks. You know, 
this movie was, I feel like this movie was made to win some Oscars or get some Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. you know? I feel well, it's, like... it's traditionally like a, a Hugh hits a lot of those, um, those ticks they want on an Oscar movie. It's got, you know, some big actors playing kind of dramatic roles. More importantly, it's about filmmaking, mm-hmm. which the, the Academy just goes nuts over. going crazy over that lately. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the big actors. Period have, piece. Uh, John Lee Hancock, the director, who uh, previously had made The Blind Side, which is big a movie that... There's been a little bit of a backlash against that in recent years Mm -hmm. because it's one of those, you know, white people help this black person um, to, you know, teach him everything he knows and help him be successful. Like Back Uh, to the Future. (laughs) Yeah. So, um... I never saw the Blind Side. I can't. I can't uh, like, make I, a comment. Didn't have enough Tom Hanks in it for me to check it out. I, you know, I saw it with my family at the time, and I loved it. Like I had a great time with it. How did you feel about Mr. Banks? Um, we'll get to it. I'm building up to it. Come on, you're you're building up. You're you're building up too slow. Just cut to the crap. Okay. You don't like this movie, do you? Here's the thing. Like he I doesn't think like this movie. I think it's a well-made movie. I think it, you know, has all the ingredients in place. But the movie breaks its story up over two timelines. That is you definitely have something I want to talk about. One with uh, the present day storyline in the 1960s, the Mad Men era of her collaborating with uh, Walt Disney and his uh, trio of of uh, character actors. Uh, you have uh, the screenwriter played by Bradley Whitford and the music and lyrics team by uh, Jason Schwartzman and B.J. Novak. Mm-hmm. And then we're also witnessing a the P- Mrs. P.L. Travers' childhood in seeing her growing up in Australia in, like, 1901. Yeah, simultaneously we're seeing these two different stories. Her, ki- her childhood, which is informing basically where she came up with the characters in the book, and yeah. the breakdown of this book and this... Horrible corruption of her artistic vision. So, which you want to talk about first? Like, the present day or the past? Well, okay, again, because you, for some reason, won't just admit that you don't <laughs> like this movie because you're building up I to it I want to contextualize it. We're, that's what the whole conversation is. I'm going to say I like this movie. Did uh, you? I did. I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, it. It has... I like the whimsy. I appreciate the different points of view. Uh, I'm wondering if I'm more your Walt Disney... And you're more our, our P.L. Travers of this. You you find that this movie was a disappointment, just like life has disappointed you. The problem is that I don't want to be Mrs. P.L. Travers in this situation because Mrs. P.L. Travers is a very unlikable character Let's talk about in this that. movie. And basically when the movie starts, she just shits all over everything, like constantly. There's one scene where she's in an airplane and uh, this fellow passenger (laughs) on the plane moves her luggage so that Mrs. P.L. Travers can fit her luggage like right next to her seat, Mm -hmm. which is something that the fellow passenger didn't have to do. Like the the other passenger is being very friendly and polite. And Mrs. P.L. Travers' response is to immediately insult the lady's baby. You know? Yeah, I mean, she's obviously, she's kind of this crone she's just nasty she's nasty to she's, everyone she's a horrible nasty bitch like once she gets in the room with the character actors she's just 
constantly complaining about everything. At one point she says she doesn't want there to be any red in the movie. That was something I, I, I thought was hilarious. Maybe the funniest part of the movie. Because traditionally speaking, at least from my, you know, experience and hearing stories of Hollywood, that's the kind of note that the network would give to the writers. And to see it coming from the opposite perspective, I thought was just, again, this movie has the corporation be the underdog and the one you're rooting for, in a way. And I just thought that was a really crazy flip on this trope. Well, the thing is, like, the corporation made the movie. Like, the corporation is telling the story. So it just feels like the corporation is, you know, selling themselves as the underdog. It's absolutely doing that. But America as a culture, which is the farthest thing from an underdog, mm -hmm. is constantly selling itself as an underdog. It's kind of a weird habit we are mired in. It's probably not the best thing, but... As a piece of, you know, as a story, divorcing it from the connotations, I think it works. Yeah, I mean, the, the connotations just weigh so heavily on my mind because, like, this woman, the mo basically the structure of the movie is her, like, being ultimately won over by the Disney magic. Um, to be, like, sitting there at the premiere of Mary Poppins and sitting there with tears in her eyes, mm -hmm. just overcome by the, the whimsy and the magic. Well, she did say that she was crying because she couldn't, she couldn't abide a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, like, in real life, Mrs. P.L. Travers never actually, you know, liked the movie. Like, no. she never reached that part. She like, had problems she, with it. She hated it. And for the rest of her life, you know, it was something that, like, she never let Disney make any sequels to it. Like, when they did the musicals, she had to have, like, all these, you know, again, all those restrictions that they had to abide by. And so it just feels like Disney, instead of portraying her in a way that, you know, she should be celebrated... It's like, you know, she created this thing. Like, Mrs. P.L. Travers is the person who gave us Mary Poppins. You know, uh, when we were talking earlier about our association with Mary Poppins, the, uh, the character, I didn't see the movie until I was probably in high school or something. Mm -hmm. because, but growing up, you know, I had all those Disney, like, sing-along videos and the... Uh, like I had a Disney computer game that had all these music, well, TV and movie clips. Right, in it. right, yeah. So it's like I'd seen, you know, you were familiar, you were familiar and, with the stuff, but you uh, never Chim seen the movie. Yeah, um, but like those, like I hear the songs in this movie. There's one scene where they're singing "Let's Go Fly a Kite" for the first time, mm -hmm. and that's probably my either that or one other scene. That's probably like my favorite scene in the movie. Um, just seeing the excitement of, you know, let's go yeah, yeah, fly. Yeah. yeah, and then I like how they say atmosphere because they say like atmosphere. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Sphere. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like with uh, Mrs. P.L. Travers, like she created Mary Poppins. Like she did... She created something magical that, through her book, you know, affected all these children. Oh, Walt Disney's uh, motivation for creating the movie is because his daughters loved it. 
Right. And so I think that's a good motivation. Right, 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 right. But, but do you think that it was... Because I think what you're building toward is uh, a conversation about... Because you're right, they do depict her as a kind of a nasty person, which is mm-hmm. kind of a terrible thing for this company to do when she was the one who created this. Mm-hmm. But now uh, I want to ask you, is this... Do you believe that what... And I'm struggling to put this into a proper question, but uh, where, I mean, it seems like you're going down on Mrs. Travers's side, but where do you feel like the ownership of an idea falls? It should always be with the writer. Do you think she was in the right mood and the world would be better if there wasn't a Mary Poppins movie? That's a good question. So I don't think the Mary Poppins movie is like the deciding factor in whether the world is, you know, good or bad. Right. But right. I think, you know, the Mary Poppins movie is a great thing that has made a lot of people really happy. Mm-hmm. In terms of whether the movie should or shouldn't exist, uh, Mrs. P.L. Travers gave the rights to Disney for them to do it. Yeah. So they have the right to make that movie. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Uh, in real life, much of the material shown in this movie didn't actually happen. Like, Disney went on vacation uh, when they started this, uh, when these collaborations were mm-hmm. happening. So a lot of it was, like, over the phone or through Courier or what have you. Like, um, the yeah, final he scene... He certainly never went to London Yeah, to the final scene just, like, never happened at all. So... Did, like, once the Disney Corporation has the rights to make the movie, they can do whatever they want. You know, there's countless examples in Hollywood of a company getting the rights to a great piece of material and just messing up completely. Is Do you feel like that's what happened here, though? I don't. I think they... I've never read the Mary Poppins book. Uh, I think they matched or possibly exceeded, like, what P.L. Travers created. Okay. So I feel like with Mrs. P.L. Travers, if they, um, if she, if she gave the rights to Disney for, uh, making the movie, then, you know, fair enough. That's what they did. Um, I think first I want to say, like, I think it's really cool that, the real Walt Disney, like he didn't, when she refused him the rights over the course of 20 years, he didn't come up with his own like Sherry Bobbins. Like he didn't just like. He wanted the real thing. Yeah. But I think that's cool that he didn't just like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm just going to like create my own nanny who does. It's kind of like Nosferatu instead of Dracula and, or yeah. something, you know. Which I think is such cool. an, just such a commonplace thing and an easy thing to do is mm-hmm. to come up with a different enough idea that's basically ripped from your inspiration or the thing you really love. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like taking fan fiction and making it its own thing. It's, it's uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Um, versus... I'm glad you didn't make Fifty Shades of Mary Poppins. No. Why would I, why would I do that? <laughs> uh, why would anybody do that? I'm sure it's already been done, actually, if you look on the internet. Uh, so, okay. But... You're coming down very hard on the Disney side, and yet, I want to say for the record, I really like Disney. And yet, and yet, you um, Disney you, makes a lot of great things, and they do a lot of really, really 
cool, positive things with their power. Do you feel, do you feel like they are valid artists? Yeah. Or let, let's, let, let's stop the real life comparison now and go back to the movie. Do you feel like these guys in the movie, the ones the, who the wrote character the song, actors, the character actors, were these, were they part, were they creating art or were they just ripping it off? Well, here's the thing. Like with the music, the music and lyrics guys, mm-hmm. like Jason Schwartzman and BJ Novak, absolutely. Like they were being creative, like super califragilisticexpialidocious. Like I don't think that going by the movie, that word doesn't even appear in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they're they're creating songs, which is a humongous achievement. Well, what was the thing in the early scene where I think they, it's the first scene they meet where uh, they're singing a version of the song and it's like reconsted or... Yeah. Uh, it's just a slight variation on a word and there's the shot of let's hide the song Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah, well, she's like, I don't like made up words. Yeah, I just hide like, it. Behind. All right, yeah. It's, it's the, there's, there's a lot of humor to this movie. Yeah, I think that um, like those two guys are awesome. When it comes to... Um, the Bradley Whitford character, he doesn't do a whole lot aside from like look at Emma Thompson askance. They but dance. They dance. I think most of his work was like happened. It, they, they were in production for. They were in pre-production for like a year before yeah. uh, she came up. To you know, like when she comes in, they pretty much have a locked script. Yeah. And she's just like going over each page. I mean, it's funny when she's like. Xed? What is Xed? Um, There's a lot of insider jokes. Again, why yeah, this played that's really exterior well. exterior in the... With, uh, they've seen the movie. <laughs> you don't have to explain. Okay. So, with... Um, what are we talking about? Oh, well, I mean, he wrote the script. So, you know, when you take a book and you change it into a screenplay, you're still you know, seeing what works, what doesn't, in a different form. You're translating from one medium to another. So, I mean, in terms of those three guys, yeah, they're all creative. They're all artists. Like, they're all doing their job and doing a good job of it. I think that um, the thing about this movie is that, like, when you get into somebody like Walt Disney, I mean, Walt Disney has... He's a complicated figure because once you start looking at people from the early 20th century, you know, they have a lot of attitudes and prejudices that, you know, down the line look really, really bad. You know, there are a lot of people who in the early 20th century had negative attitudes towards certain kinds of people, for example, that, you know, in a more enlightened era, you can label them, you know, strongly prejudiced in certain ways. I'm being very careful of my language. Right, but you're also not talking about the movie anymore. (laughs) You're talking about all the stuff that's happening outside of the movie, which is absolutely a uh, a valuable and valid uh, question and conversation. But I feel like you're just letting the outside reality pervert your experience Let me take that out. Um, There's one thing in the movie, um, his smoking. Like, we never see him smoke, but we uh, we do hear his cough. And there's one point, I feel like his hand's a little obscured. 
if I remember, but he's extinguishing he's it. You can see the cigarette. smoke. You can see okay. the extinguishing. And he so, says it. He says it blatantly. Like I don't. Your like TV's people. bigger than mine. So. I, he says it, he blatantly says it. I don't uh, let people like to let people see me smoke. Yeah, and uh, you know now if you show people smoking in a movie, you get like an R rating. It seems like, so it's it's the thing where it's a little sanitized. Part of the reason Mad Men feels like such an accurate depiction of the era is that when you go into these meeting rooms, everybody's smoking a cigarette, and I think it would be interesting. If they had a scene where, like in the writer's room, you know, the men are all smoking and, you know, Emma Thompson made them put it out or something. As opposed to, you know, freaking out about the food. But that's, like, super nitpicking. That is incredible nitpicking. You don't want to do it, but we just spent five minutes doing it. Yeah. I I Um, do have to say something interesting about the smoking, actually, is obviously that was a whole debate between a realistic depiction of Disney on the writer's part and uh, Disney wanting to be careful, and obviously now we have all these rules, like you were saying, mm-hmm. about uh, putting cigarettes in movies and demonstrating that. But uh, Tom Hanks, the man himself, the reason why we're here today, was insistent that they incorporate some of that, and that's why he was uh, you know, so committed to putting in the coughing to all his character and all that scenes. That was something he was very passionate about bringing that across. And uh, with that, what do you think of Hanks' Disney? I think he did a good job. Probably uh, one of my favorite scenes from him in the movie is the monologue at the end where he talks about when he was a boy in Missouri delivering newspapers. About his father? Yeah, he just gets, you know, he talks about how he, you know, he loved his father, you know, loved his family and everything, but he just starts talking about uh, delivering newspapers in the snow and how his... Like, it goes really into detail. Like, my father said we couldn't get new shoes until, you know, our shoes were worn. So we just have to, you know, like, the way he describes it and the look in his eyes, like, you just really, really feel it. I think that he he has a lot of the... um, Like, he has a lot of playfulness and whimsy. Like, when he recreates one of... uh, the Wonderful World of Disney segments mm-hmm. with him, like, playing with Tinkerbell. And I think he also has a lot of weariness as well. With, you know, someone like Disney, you're constantly dealing with, you know, endless amounts of problems. And there are scenes in this movie where he's just, like, at wit's end. So I think he, you know, did really well. I want to say one thing though and i'm this is probably like you're gonna criticize me for saying this please but i feel like from disney's perspective the disney corporation's perspective if you cast someone as you know tom hanks as (laughs) walt disney you're kind of stacking the deck it's true just because tom hanks is so beloved if they had cast someone like gary oldman for example Disney would have been a little more ambiguous. It's true. Uh, although I feel like in the cult... Well, obviously, it depends on which perspective you're in. But there is a culture where Walt Disney is thought of as this very whimsical, magical person who is much beloved, just like Tom Hanks. Of course, that's kind of... You're buying into the Disney culture. Mm-hmm. So I 
obviously, yeah, when you're correct. When you cast him, you're casting for that specific vision. You could cast Gary Oldman and have it play a little bit more ambiguous, as you're saying. That's uh, that's an interesting thing, but I think obviously they're going to make that choice, and I think it wasn't a bad choice because I want to talk about the movie's ideology and a line that really stood out to me. Um, uh, can I ask you one quick question oh, on please, Tom please. Disney? Um, and we can, you, go, we can come back to this, too. Okay. Um, I feel like I have way more to talk about about this movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> you seem like you're almost done. Um, do you, like, thi- like, this is it. We're probably never going to see Tom Hanks playing Walt Disney again. It's would probably you have, not. They never made a Mary Poppins, too. Would you, would you have rather seen Tom Hanks play Walt Disney in a different kind of movie? Hmm... That's an impossible question to answer because without yeah. any idea what this movie is, that's a stupid question. Okay. I mean, do you... Would I like to see Tom Hanks play any character? Of course. Like, I'm like, glad in, a, like got... in a biopic or something. That would have been something. Okay. And you know, uh, here's a titbit. Uh, if you paid attention to the movie, you'll enjoy that. Um, Tom Hanks is a very distant cousin of Walt Disney. So really? it's appropriate that he, uh, that he played him. So Interesting. Uh, obviously I would have loved to see a, you know, or I would still continue to love to see Hanks play Disney, but I'm glad that we got to see him play him at all. Cause there is a very good chance that it wouldn't happen. Okay. Uh, we'll never see Gary Oldman play Disney most likely. And now I'm a little upset we didn't get to see that, <laughs> but, uh, Tom Hanks did. And that's why we're talking about saving Mr. Banks today. Okay. Um, but now let me, let me point out this line. Um, Actually, you know what? I'm going to save that because you mentioned earlier you really liked his speech about his father. Um, and I want to ask, do you feel like this movie is saying anything about the inevitability of becoming your parents? Because that's the self-destructive side of Mrs. Travers that I got. Well... She's so wanted to be whimsical like her father, who is obviously paralleled with how Disney acts, but she hates that because of all the hang-ups she had since his, his drinking and his death. So I feel like she became the way that the movie presents her mother and obviously the, the, the nanny who became, who based, uh, who was Mary Poppins was based on, uh, became so reserved and conservative and angry uh, that it was kind of like this thing she never wanted to be, but she became without trying. Well, I mean, the movie's called Saving Mr. Banks. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Banks, based on her father, uh, you have um, Walt Disney relating... I mean, that's kind of the crux of the monologue at the end, that she isn't there to save the kids. She's there to save Mr. Banks. So it's talking about, you know, the parents need to be saved in order for the kids to, uh, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to think this out loud. Let me me ask you this. Um, The... 
like it's saving Mr. Banks, but why isn't it saving Mrs. Banks as well? Like Ruth Wilson, who played uh, her mom, mm-hmm. like she tries to drown herself. That was really dark. And like nobody, like it's just like never mentioned again. It's just like brushed under the rug. I didn't forget about it. Uh, Colin Farrell plays her father, and mm-hmm. he's um, uh, Travers Goff is his name, uh, which is very whimsical. Yes. Um, that's the flashback scenes. And you said you had an issue with the flashback scenes or no? No, I, I actually just wanted to see what what do you think about the usefulness of the flashback scenes? Because whenever you tell a movie with two stories or two timelines really in tandem, it's because you're kind of preserving a mystery. And do you feel like the reveal, was there a reveal whatsoever really for this? It just felt like visualizing the backstory yeah and i don't think i minded it but i didn't feel like it was significantly useful um no. I, I again we wanted to see some context to the story i don't know if you would have wanted to boil this down to like a 10 minute 15 minute prologue before we started the movie proper but at the same time i don't know if i saw much like okay i get it she she loves her dad but he's whimsical because he's drunk and kind of fucks around and then there was a nanny. That's how. Yeah. So. Um, like the, the 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 most egregious example was the pears. Mm. Like oh we know it's something we're gonna learn something about why she hates pears, and then it was just because it was the day her dad died. Like that was. Yeah. There are some weak points to this movie that like they work, but it didn't resonate with me. Well, the thing is, like when you have. Um, when you have these two examples, it's like the present day stuff, that's the main story that's charging forward. That's the stuff and I'm interested in seeing. Yeah, that's why we're the, here. The flashback stuff is just like, it's what happened that, unlo- it's really hard to do that because you have to, it has to recolor things in a really interesting mm-hmm. way. And I don't think it does that completely. It just makes you like, well, it, the mother tried to kill herself. Why aren't we more concerned about her at all? Yeah. And then when Ra- like, Rachel Griffiths shows up as, it's actually like her aunt or something. Um, oh, that's the that's who yeah, Mary Poppins is based on. Something like that. But it's the like, chi- wait the chicken aunt. I don't know. There's it's, a whole chicken. Subplot. I think in real life, um, Mary Poppins is like loosely based on her. A great aunt or something, uh, and then the movie it's specifically her like mother's sister or something like which that, which is just a regular aunt. It's <laughs> just a regular aunt, and it's like when Rachel Griffiths shows up and she's got like the bag that's with infinite capacity mm-hmm. and like the umbrella with the the, the parrot yeah. head. I was just like, give me a break. Like I think that. It's really annoying when people like can't figure out how you came up with something that was really clever. So they just assume that like, oh, you must have known someone exactly like this. Yeah, that that's <laughs> so, true. Like, what happened to you to make you think of this? Like, people don't understand how like people come up with ideas, so they just assume that you must have had experiences directly like this to be able to come up with a story like this. Which is interesting because that's... I feel like that undercuts the writing process a little bit. Well, it's interesting because it undercuts the writing process for uh, Mrs. Travers' book 
Mm-hmm. But it doesn't undercut the, the writing process for the movie Mary Poppins because mm-hmm. we see them just genuinely inventing ideas in that room yeah. rather than just stuff happening to them. So that does play to your whole <laughs> Disney's using this to completely, uh, you know, send up their version. Again and again and again. Oh, it's the merry-go-round of Disney, which the is Mary, also in this movie. The merry-go-poppins around. Um, that is interesting. Yeah, the the flashbacks are... It, it was uncomfortable, because at a certain point, too, it felt like we were seeing more flashbacks than present-day stuff, and that was not where I was mostly interested in. And again, you're, you're speaking to how it kind of devalues the the writing process, the artistic process. That's also what I was most interested in, is this battle over can I give up my thing to someone else when I know they're going to change it? That's something I think about all the time as a, as a creative person. And I'm sure you do the same thing. Like if someone came along and was like, hi, I'm Mr. Universal, not the bodybuilder, but the studio president that you didn't know was a real single person. But Hey, Elliot Campos, who is the uh, creator of the podcast beyond school. Uh, check it out on iTunes. Um, I want to take your intellectual property and make it into a movie. What do you do? Uh, how many zeros are on that check? <laughs> so you no. can be bought. You can be bought. Here, here's the thing. Like, I've, you know, like, I've written scripts, you've written scripts, and it's like, when we write this stuff, we spend, you know, months or years formulating the ideas and getting them out on paper and saying them exactly right. And it's like, eventually, like, I'm not going to direct my own stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to produce it. I'm not going to, you know, be behind the camera and making it happen. So, you know, in an ideal world, like, what would eventually happen is for me to sell the rights to someone else so they can, you know, mount the production. But that's only because you're writing a script rather than a book. Right. Say you wrote a book of Beyond... Well, I mean... Beyond School is a podcast. It's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's not a version of it like you could make a movie, but it's like essentially not that it's done because it's still going. You can get new uh, episodes <laughs> if you subscribe on iTunes. Um, but uh, that's its final form. I mean, here's the thing. Like if somebody, uh, you know, wanted to adapt, say they wanted to adapt Beyond School into a TV show. If, you know, we talk, we have a good relationship, you know, and I decide to, you know, give them the rights. At that point, you know, I hope I'm still involved. I hope I still have, you know, creative input. But at the end of the day, they get to do whatever they want. If, you know, I'm really, like, if in any, if by whatever miracle, you know, the show is a success, <laughs> um, the show continues on, like, I hope that I'm proud of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, once I sign over the rights, the right owners have the legal uh, authority to do whatever they want with it. Does that make them equal parts creator? Do you still get the the Trump creator? Who, like... I mean, here's, how does the parentage the work? Let's, let's look at uh, the creative scenes in Saving Mr. Banks. Yes. When Mrs. P.L. Travers goes into those rooms with goes into that room with the trio of character actors. and Let's just call see... them the, the writers. Because <laughs> they're not... They, you're going to confuse people. <laughs> so when she goes into the room with the writers, 
Bradley Whitford is very like accommodating, like doing whatever he can to help her. Jason Schwartzman is kind of like the airhead. He's always uh, saying the wrong thing. And BJ Novak just outright hates her. I love, I love, uh, yeah, I love both. Really, all three of those perspectives just. It's nice that they each have their own, yeah. like, super individual thing. But I love Jason Schwartzman just being like, we made it up. What are you talking about? The they're going to be animated. <laughs> uh, he's very funny. He, um, I, like, I don't know. Like, I'm surprised that Jason Schwartzman is kind of like, in such a second banana role here. I guess I have a much higher opinion of Jason Schwartzman. Schwartzman's than wonderful. Like, I love Jason Schwartzman. Certainly worthy of his own podcast, but I feel, feel like if you're, you have the opportunity to be in a movie with Tom Hanks, yeah. you're going to do it. Yeah. Um, Who wouldn't do it? And he had a great part. I mean, maybe it was like just a smaller part, you know, wasn't a whole major commitment. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I really, really like Jason Schwartzman. How often does he get cast in a movie where he gets to sing, too? And <laughs> he, that guy, he has his own band. He sings. Yeah, I mean, I guess in uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, he was like the wit. He was the what was his title? Gideon Graves. Yeah, but he the was like boss. the the final the final <laughs> boss. That was his official G Man. The final X or something like that. He didn't have like a, a title like that. Okay, but he was like so important that I just carry that gravitas. Oh yeah, like he was the, he was the organizer of the movies. league. Uh, He's but he, I, he is a huge <laughs> deal. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, um, it's like. With, like, in that room, Emma Thompson just isn't a collaborator at all. No, she's not. It isn't like, let's talk about this and, like, see what we can work out. It's like, do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do you think that's right? I think that if I was in that situation, I would be feeling more like BJ Novak because these guys, like, I knew when I was watching this movie today. I was watching it, and as soon as B.J. Novak said, does it matter? I was like, that's how, that's how Elliot feels. He identifies with B.J. Novak. The, um, and it's not just because they look alike. <laughs> the I wish I looked like B.J. Novak. You guys are both so handsome. <laughs> I feel like... Look, these writers, they didn't create the situation. Like, they were hired to make the best movie they can. Of course. And they've spent, like, at least a year, like, struggling to create the best movie they can. And then P.L. Travers comes in at the 11th hour and is just naysaying everything constantly. And it's just so super frustrating when film, which is the ultimate collaborative medium, which for a film to be successful, it needs the utmost teamwork of hundreds of people for one person in one of the highest rungs of power to just be constantly undermining everyone around her. So this movie, I feel like it really, really, really villainizes her. And again, like we've talked about why I have a problem with that. It's, it's true. It's interesting though, because she's also the hero of this movie because it's her story we're following it's her story we're contextualizing with these flashbacks and i feel like that is there are movies that are or there are stories that are about kind of despicable people and usually those stories are about humanizing them so and that's what this movie sets out to do. Uh, we haven't talked about Paul Giamatti yet. And I, I love... I want to do that really quick. Paul Giamatti. Um, one of the early scenes is when he's driving her and he's just making friendly conversation and she like slams the window closed so they can't talk anymore. 
Like, when the movie starts, it's just countless scenes like that. Um, Emma Thompson, I think we both really like her. Of course. She's a wonderful actress. Uh, she actually wrote and starred in this movie, Nanny McPhee, about six years before this movie <laughs> was made, uh, which is actually, like... Um, this is what I was talking about when I was like, at least Disney didn't make like a pseudo yeah. Mary Poppins movie. Like Nanny McPhee is totally like uh, your pseudo like Mary Poppins. Well, it's movie. like Mary Poppins for a new generation, yeah. basically. Like it's a really good movie. It's really like nice and charming. Like it's for children, but it's a good movie. And so I feel like uh, Emma Thompson, for her, like she has a close connection with Mary Poppins because she wrote the Nanny McPhee of movie. Of course, she's so a per- again perfect casting. She's yeah, she's really good casting. But like when we look at you know the scene with Paul Giamatti and you know all these other scenes like with the woman on the plane with the baby, mm-hmm. it's like what this movie shows is that you know she was in a horrible place in her life and then you know the magic of Disney filled her up. And now she's better at the end. And it's like, I feel like um, this movie was just miscalculated a bit. It, it certainly... Wait, well, okay, actually, why don't you explain miscalculation? How was this miscalculated? I feel like this is a really... It's difficult to precisely nail it and make it balanced when Disney's making the movie. Because with the Disney Corporation, you know, they have a responsibility to their, you know, shareholders and their legacy to project their past in a certain way. Mm -hmm. To project Walt Disney in a certain way. Um, We talked about that with the cigarettes. How we never actually see him smoking. I feel like with this particular story, like, there are... You know, there are moments of heroism to it on both sides, creative heroism. And there are moments of warts to it, too. You know, moments of creative ugliness, so to speak. And I feel like we see all those warts on the side of Mrs. P.L. Travers, but, like, do we see any of those warts on the side of the Disney Corporation? I or... think the warts we see in the movie is that there's not enough Tom Hanks. Yeah, He's I barely mean, he's... in the movie. Well, this is what I was talking he's about. He's represented where, like, by um, a lot of the Disney people. He, uh... Um, the biggest wart is that he doesn't, invite her, he doesn't invite her to the premiere. Obviously, that's not enough to make Which is what even. happened in real life. Of course. Because um, why would you want her Did to... you read the... Did you read what happened when she talked to him at the premiere? Or I did like not that? read that. What happened? She uh, went up to him and she was um, trying to convince him to cut the animation out of the movie. And uh, Disney said to her, uh, the ship has sailed, Pamela. <laughs> so I think that with Disney, the real Walt Disney, like he was dealing with a lot of stuff. Like he was supervising a lot of movies. Well, of course, he had a lot of television. He can't give his full you know, attention to. He had the theme parks and whatnot. So like this Mary Poppins movie is like just one thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. And you know, for Mrs. P. L. Travers, it's it's the her only. Whole life. It's her whole life. But for Disney, this is just like, all right, let's get it up and running, and right. then like get it done. But do you have a do you have a point? Well, that's why he isn't in the movie a lot. 
Well, <laughs> that's a stupid point to make. <laughs> no, I, but uh, I think that, yes, this movie, it's certainly... Oh, well, I, it was when we, when I said, like, Pamela, the ship has sailed. Like, for him, this was just, like, a nuisance, basically, in real life. I think and then that... the movie, too. He certainly couldn't stand her. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, in the movie, it makes up that scene where he goes to see her in London. I, they, did the have, they did have phone so, calls. Yeah. So those conversations... Did... Obviously, amalgamations of those conversations really did take place, but yeah, he didn't. He certainly didn't go to. Yeah. But you, it's a movie. You gotta embellish yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but the whole, the whole point of what you were saying is that yeah, the, we have two different uh, servings of these kind of perspectives. But uh, what was the question you asked me? The quote that stuck out. Okay. This is what I wanted to ask you, is. Um, but when she's with Paul Giamatti in the in the the taxi, no, the the car, the limo. It's a limo, I guess. It's a very short. Come on, limo. Dash. It's, it's, not, it's a limo. It's not a limo. We're it's, in a limo. It's a short uh, little little car. Um, it has that uh, window thing that you yeah, but a limo. It needs at least six windows, I think. Oh wow. Um, but uh, either way, she's in the car, and she says that she'd rather be rain bring rain than sunshine mm -hmm. because the rain brings life. And then Paul Giamatti says, the sunshine brings life too. Mm. Um, and I think that's sort of the fumbled metaphor of the movie uh, is right there in those words was both is that um, you have a perspective like Mrs. P.L. Travers, mm -hmm. who is the rain and does bring life, but it comes with certain connotations. And obviously the Disney corporation and Walt is that sunshine. They both bring it, but they kind of bring it in this different context, different textures. And uh, you kind of need both for harmony. So it doesn't speak to the book, obviously, but I do think it, it speaks to the larger thematics of collaboration, which is about filmmaking, again, which is what this movie is basically all about. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think that with that quote, you know, rain bringing life, it's, I mean, the person who's saying that is the one who's bringing rain onto everyone's day. And so her attitude is that, oh, well, if I tell people that, you know, they look fat in their clothes, then they won't wear that outfit again, and I'll be doing them a she service. She never said that <laughs> in the movie. She was never that terrible. I mean... Pretty much. I mean, the baby thing excluding, but babies are awful. Why would you ever have a child and bring it on a plane? It'd be one it's thing. It's like if bringing a baby to a movie. <laughs> Fuck you if you do that. It'd be one thing if she was just like saying that to someone whose baby was crying to her, but this is someone who did a very nice thing to her. All anyway, right. Anyway. I got, no, I got to ask. Um, okay. uh, um, do you never relate to... to uh, Mrs. P.L. Travers and that you're just kind of stuck being this awful person? Because there are days where I realize, like, I am in a shitty mood and I am just a rain cloud on everybody. And I try not to be, but, like, I can't help but be either a jerk or just have a bad point of view. Do you ever have that? Yeah, I've been dealing with that for the past couple weeks. It's so, not fun. <laughs> no, it's not. But I feel like that's part of why this movie is so... 
why it's it's so cruel to her is because we can all be stuck in that perspective. Well, what do you think of someone like Paul Giamatti's character, who is basically a saint? I love Paul Giamatti's character. He, well, Paul Giamatti is... We don't see enough... He needs to work a lot more. Like... As an actor? Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I mean, he's not... Like, he hasn't been... Like, he was the rhino in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Like, he needs to... He was in the like, Amazing Spider-Man 2, a major motion picture that was probably god-awful. You liked it, though, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm... Different I'm podcast. Lo- I'm in a super minority on that one. I don't know. But it made a lot of money. He's not in a lot of the movie, but what I'm saying is that, like, he needs to be in, like, lead roles. Like, he's just such a talented guy. Right. Um, he's no Tom Hanks, but this he's movie, there. he's playing a fake person. Um, well, that's a hard thing to do, because I know what you're saying is, like, he's he's a saint. But you have to recognize that outside of one very extreme scene, which is where he picks her up, like, a year later mm-hmm. uh, for the movie premiere, we only see him for... a certain part of his day while he's at work. Mm-hmm. We don't know the rest of his life. Yeah, we know he has a, a daughter who is handicapped, but he probably is just as shitty of a person as all of us are in <laughs> the rest of his life. This is a this is he's he's hired not only to be a driver, but to be a driver to like the most important people. So you kinda have to be an ass kisser and the nicest, most patient guy. To get that job. What do you think about the joke of him, like, running around to open the door, and then, like, people reach for it, and he'll, like, no, 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 I got it. And then, like, uh, when Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks just, like, opens the door. Like, there are just a couple scenes of him, like, running to the door, and, like, no, 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 I got it. What do I think? I, like, I don't know. It was was a detail. I I didn't strike me as... But I thought it was cool, like, when Tom (laughs) Hanks just, like, he'll open the door. No, I like that. I mean, that that seemed uh, appropriate for Walt to just... Or at least it seemed appropriate to the character of Walt that was in this movie, where it's like, I'm just going to get my own hands dirty and, like, I don't care. So you don't like this movie? I feel like this is a movie that I have issues with its construction, like how it was made. I think ultimately it's just kind of a kind of middle of the road. I think it has uh, really good performances, like, across the board. I think that, you know, this with this caliber of cast... It's something where it's nice just watching the actors bounce off each other. I think that, like, the flashback narrative, you know, doesn't really add a lot to yeah, it. Yeah, it weighs it down. With, you know, Walt Disney, Tom Hanks can just give a really good monologue, and that just gives you so much from that, as opposed to if the movie was showing us flashbacks to, you know, Walt Disney as Being a little with boy. his father, yeah. Yeah, it's like with... Um, Even the storytelling of the movie itself sides with Disney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the um, like when you're when you're showing the creative process, it's not that exciting on film. Uh, it's kind of like showing a writer at a laptop, you know, as he's writing his screenplay. Yeah. Like the movie adaptation is one of my favorite movies. It's the but, only time it ever worked. Well, that movie has to jump through a lot of hoops <laughs> to make it really, really interesting. Um, this movie is, um, you know, great cast, you know. You said that already. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a story worth telling, but I feel like um, because Disney... Clearly, the Disney Corporation clearly has, you know, it has, it's more invested in one side of the, you know, confrontation than the other side. I feel like it kind of skews the the conversation in a certain way. 
and I feel like it isn't as honest as it potentially could be. What ice cream flavor would this Tom Hanks be? This Tom Hanks movie, rather. Okay. Well, there are two options for this. Um, one, it would be an ice cream for very rich people because they're the ones who win in this movie. Right. Uh, the other option would be uh, a Disney-flavored ice cream. That was, my thought was it should just be the, the Mickey Mouse uh, with the ears popsicle. Yeah. Uh, where, where can the people find you, Elliot? Hi, uh, I'm Elliot Campos. They uh, heard you. They know who you are by this point. <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, I do this podcast called Beyond School. is an audio play about this teenage girl who uh, travels across the world fighting aliens. Uh, it's currently on iTunes, and you can uh, listen to new episodes there. So now the most important question. Which of the Tom Hanks Library uh, saving movies is better? Saving Private Ryan or Saving Mr. Banks? Go. Wow, that's really close. <laughs> All right, so that was our conversation this week for Saving Mr. Banks. And, yeah, I don't know. I still come down on the side. I'm of two minds of the, at the moment. This, you know, when you think of it as just, you know, a standalone harmless movie, I think it's, it's kind of a nice little send-up. I think there is something about, I wonder if there's something about the the fact that if it was, if it was a male protagonist, if P.L. Travers was a guy, would the angeriness, the bitterness, because I always, when I was watching the movie, I saw it as more of a comedic thing. Like, we have angry curmudgeons all the time in media, and uh, like, Larry David springs to mind, and it's hilarious when he's rude and awful. But uh, I wonder if maybe there was some, like, it's, dis it's disregarded as a funny thing because she's a woman, or it's more unlikable, or it's less cool to be unlikable uh, as a female protagonist, which that has its own hang-ups. But, uh, yeah, I, again, I didn't notice the potential character assassination when watching the movie, but after talking with Elliot and thinking about it, when this is when you bring it out to a broader scope, it's a trickier place to land uh, exactly where that argument lies and how how to feel about that because of the the real life context of the relationship between Disney and this woman. Um, so yeah, tricky stuff. I still think the movie's fine. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to enjoy it, but it does lead me to this bigger question of what is the purpose of the movie? And I wonder if the original purpose of the, the screenwriters got maybe lost along the way uh, and kind of harmonized into this happier um, little bit of medicine with a spoonful of sugar to take down. Anyway, this is one I'll be thinking about for a while. Hope you will be too. All right, that's it for this week. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at TomHanksPod. Follow me, at Elvis Kunesh. Uh, you can email us, uh, TomHanksPod at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, review, comment, give everything, share, blah, 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 all that crap on iTunes. And, uh, oh, you guys hear that? Why, it must be the Polar Express. We'll be talking about that next week. Don't forget to come back. And until then, thanks for listening.